Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, I'm Jason Bellamy. We often think of crawling as a gateway to walking, but for infants, it's much more than that. Crawling is a gateway to exploration, exploration that encourages the child's physical, mental, and social development. So what happens when a child can't crawl because he or she doesn't have the necessary strength or coordination? That's a situation typically faced by infants with cerebral palsy. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, we'll hear from two physical therapists who collaborated to invent a device that provides crucial movement assistance for children with cerebral palsy and other developmental delays. It's called the Self-Initiated Prone Progression Crawler, or SIPSI. And while the device is still evolving, it was one of 13 projects recognized by the Smithsonian Institution's Innovation Festival back in September 2015. Here to discuss the inspiration for and the function of the SIPSI are its inventors, physical therapist Tubi Kolobe and Peter Pidko. We're talking about cerebral palsy today. It affects about 3.6 of every 1,000 children born in the U.S. Can you give me a short definition? We're familiar with cerebral palsy, but for people who aren't, what are the basics? What causes it? What are the primary effects? Well, cerebral palsy is a non-progressive disorder of the brain that usually occurs either before the baby is born or during birth or after the baby is born. And it affects various areas of the brain and result in the baby having abnormal movements. So cerebral palsy is a term used mostly when there's a problem with the movements of the baby and not necessarily with cognition alone or speech alone, but it's primarily for movement. Most babies with cerebral palsy are diagnosed a little bit later, as we'll talk about, but the lesion itself occurs way, 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 way early, during at least before the first 30 days of life. The most important thing is that it's really non-progressive in terms of the lesion, but in terms of function, we now know that children with cerebral palsy, they tend to sometimes, if nothing is done, they tend to be weaker and lose function as they grow older and then eventually they also develop a lot more complications if nothing is done. So it's important to make this distinction that the lesion itself is not progressive, but the condition itself is not treated. The individuals that have got cerebral palsy can progressively become worse in terms of their function and what they can do. So I want to talk about using walking as an example there are adults who suffer brain injuries and may lose the ability to walk and then learn to regain that ability. You talked about some people with cerebral palsy, some children are able to learn to walk. Why are those two situations different, that the child with cerebral palsy trying to learn this skill versus the adult who have this skill and then tries to relearn it? For the adult with brain injury, both of them would have brain injury, but the adult with brain injury tend to lose what they had and then they know what it is they were able to do. And so retraining sometimes can be a little bit much more feasible because they know what they could do and they try to do what they used to do. 
But for the children, the lesion occurs long before the skill emerges. So if they've never walked, they really don't know what it is like to walk. And so that's why sometimes they may not choose to walk simply because they've never had to walk. Now, there's also the differences in their responses. Depending on the severity of the lesion, the children tend to make progress much, much faster and better simply because their brain is immature and then they start to form a lot of neural connections in the brain and the brain continues to grow. Whereas an adult, depending on the level of the lesion, sometimes the same what we call plasticity, so same connections are made but they are made much slower and there are not a lot of them at the same time occurring so that the progress is much slower than with infants. The traditional diagnosis of cerebral palsy, what's involved in that and how old is the child when that takes place? Unfortunately, they still believe out there that you cannot diagnose children until uh, with cerebral palsy until much later in life. And that's because most of the diagnosis has focused, has revolved around imaging, like um, CT scans and MRI and ultrasound. Well, we now know that some of the children who have got abnormal MRIs or abnormal CT scans are fine, but these are the methods that people still use. So physicians mostly know that there is what we call false positive uh, results from things like ultrasound and MRI and CT scans. So what they tend to do is to wait until such time that the child now fails major milestones. So there's a neurological assessment of the child to look at whether they develop assessment. There is imaging to look at whether the child has got cerebral palsy. And then there's this milestone thing that confirms that the child is either delayed or has got cerebral palsy. That's traditionally what has been done, and that has contributed to delayed diagnosis. But recently, there has been newer tools that have shown very good sensitivity and very good prediction. These two tools are fairly new, and they have much, much better accuracy than the other methods that I've just described to you. So you could, as early as three months, know if the child is delayed. When a child is delayed, it's important to introduce intervention and not necessarily wait for the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And I think that kind of leads us into SIPSI. Tubi, we see the importance of that early development. Give me a sense of what problem you were trying to solve that led to the development of the SIPSI. We talked earlier on about walking, but for infants, the only form of locomotion that they have in the first year of life is prone locomotion or crawling. That's what they have. And we also know that the development of prone locomotion is very, very related to other areas of development, such as cognition and such as social-emotional development. It's not until the children are able to crawl that they were able to see the children showing emergence of things like uh, cognition, spatial cognition in particular, or the children showing some of the motivation to move kind of social-emotional adaptive behavior. So it wasn't until they crawl. But the other thing is that this crawling period itself coincides with the time when the brain has been reported to show very, very high synaptic connections. So the fastest growth in the brain 
takes place between that time, because it has between eight, two months, and about nine months. And that is the same time frame in which prone locomotion develops. And so it's not amazing that there is so many connections of the other areas of development to prone locomotion. So that raises a big question to say if children with cerebral palsy do not crawl, and they don't usually through the first year of life. During the first year of life, they don't crawl because they're already delayed. So the question is, then what happens to their brains? So what happens to the other areas that are not necessarily affected, such as cognition? And we now are starting to see research that shows that in a, to a certain extent, the inability to crawl does affect those other areas. And this led to the question about what is it that can be done to try to introduce this skill, which nobody had really paid a lot of attention to until we did. The idea was, given what we know about synaptic connections, it's important then to introduce this skill early before it fails, which is what really makes the CPC unique as an approach, as an intervention, is that it's introduced before the emergence of that skill, meaning if crawling occurs about eight months, the CPC is introduced long before crawling occurs to stimulate the child and to help the child start to practice crawling long before they are delayed. So the idea of the CPC came about when I realized that many of the babies that have got cerebral palsy were progressively getting weaker and weaker and a phenomenon that is very well known and is called learn non-use because like I described earlier on, they just didn't know. They've never moved, so they didn't move. And then also they haven't moved because they are weak. And when they try to move, they have to leave their body completely off the support surface in crawling and support their bodies on their arms, which they could not do. And as a result, any movements they had were kind of wasted because they couldn't really push up on their hands and knees and move their body across. And so I envisioned a device that could support these babies and support their weights and then allow them to move their arms and legs freely without having to have the burden of supporting their bodies. And at the same time, I envisioned something that would allow us to reinforce the babies when they try to move so that they can be successful. And because we know that in infant learning, it's not until they are successful that these children will repeat an action. If they are not successful, they don't do it. They only do it if they are successful. It was with all these thoughts in my head that I realized that there wasn't anything that existed to do the things that I was looking for. The only thing I could think of was technology, so it was at that point that I thought of Pete, and then I went to talk to Pete about this. So the SIPSI, S-I-P-P-C, it stands for Self-Initiated Prone Progression Crawler. I've seen videos of SIPSI in action, and when I look at it, it essentially looks like you put the infant down on their stomach on top of what's almost like a small skateboard, and then they're wearing something that I've seen in some pictures kind of looks like a cloak. I've seen it referred to as a robotic or high-tech onesie. So what's happening just at that basic stage for the infant that's in the SIPSI? What's going on here? Well, the device itself does support body weight, and it's designed in a way that is a good interface between the child and their environment. 
It's got three points of contact. Two are powered wheels. The third is simply a, a trackball of sorts, just to provide a third contact point on the floor. The device monitors the child's movement through several different sensors, and it's the man-machine interface that really makes this thing useful. The first interface is the wheels themselves. They recognize any potential movement for the child. So if the child disturbs the device at all, it records that information and can potentially use it to drive the device. The second interface is a force plate that sits between the child and the device. And it's a lot like a body mouse, that if the child were leaning one way, the device might react and go that direction to give them a little feedback. Yes, that's a good thing to do, to unload part of your body and you know push on another part of your body. The third method is the onesie system that's been described already, and that's a sensor suit that the child wears that monitors their ankle and wrist and head and trunk positions and gives the computer information in a kind of a rendering of their quadruped posture. Through that, we can actually monitor their movement with some specificity and see if their right leg is moving at the knee, hip, or ankle, if their left arm is moving or at the elbow or shoulder, and what their head position is, and use those to make decisions about how to progress them. There is a fourth method now that's a gesture sensor that sits under their chin and gives information about their head posture. Are they lifting it? Are they looking left or looking right? The importance, I think, of all of these together is what makes this system useful. It does do some prediction to a degree. It, it determines which system is actually being utilized the most. It can interact with the child in that regard. It not only supports the movements, as Tubi was describing, to try to enhance them or give the child positive feedback for any movement that they make that we determine is crawling-like or potentially on that trajectory to get them to be locomoting. But it also records that information, so it offers a lot of information to the researcher about were they using their arms more or their legs more or their left side or their right side. So it's become quite an interesting tool that has evolved quite a bit over its original inception to now include even control through an app, an Android app. So via a cell phone or a tablet, you can intervene with the child to assist them or, again, promote their activity if they're not able to. So how long did this development take? I mean, you've got something that is anticipating the intent of the child, trying to encourage certain movements. How primitive was this when it started, and how rapidly did it evolve? Tuvi and I met at a conference. We'd worked together at the University of Illinois prior to that, and it's since gone to the universities we're with now, and crossed paths again. And we had a discussion about this device, and I, as an engineer, think about specs. You know, what are the specifications? And the questions I asked were, how heavy are the babies you plan to put on it? You know, how high does it have to be? And at that point, there were a lot of limitations with current technology. In order to make it work, the entire brain of the system and power supply for the system was actually in a secondary briefcase, and it was cabled to the device, so it was tethered. And the tether became an impediment right away because it was heavy enough with its 25 channels of computer information traveling back and forth that it would actually become a tail. And if the child dragged it and the tail gave a little tug in the opposite direction, the device would reverse simply based on that frictional element. In terms of control, it was very primitive initially. It simply reacted to the child moving it. We did capture some data off of the force interface to see what they were doing, but it was not used as a driving modality. Later, as things evolved, the onesie suit was implemented and added, and then beyond that was the gesture control in the Android app. But all of those took up until almost this past year to integrate. When you put a child on the SIPC, are there immediate changes? Do they move more, 
farther, longer, for longer periods of time? What do you see immediately when you put a child on the SIPSI? The first part of the training is really getting the child accustomed to being on their tummy. And we just put them there at the beginning for about two minutes, three minutes, until they get used to it. The other thing is when they are placed on their tummy, they start to kick. Well, this is where the nice thing, that's where the suit comes in, because if the suit senses them kicking, then it recognizes that, and then it tells the CPC they're trying to move. So the children get to move. We found that it takes about two to three weeks for them to get accustomed to just being on their tummy for a longer time. But after that, then they are so used to it. Some of them sleep right there because it's padded, so they get to relax. And then after about the sixth week, the development of reaching occurs where they reach for things. So once reaching comes, we find that they tend to kick and kick and kick to get to the toy. So they start to now use the CPC as a means to an end. So this is so new. You know, you're going back to 2004 when it's a concept to 2015 when it's at its most advanced form, but I would guess not being done with refinements. I'm sure it will continue to progress. What do we know about the long-term effects? We know that the child eventually learns how to use the SIPC. Do you know enough yet data-wise to see it improving development, to see it having an effect on children with cerebral palsy specifically? Yeah, we have finished, just finished a study that was funded by NIH to see the difference between how much they learn to move when the suit is telling the SIPSI what, you know, to reinforce the child and when this only the SIPSI is reinforcing the child. What we found is that the children who are using the SIPSI alone without the suit, like the suit just captures movement, but it doesn't tell the SIPSI to move. So when the children are using that alone, they tend to learn how to use the SIPSI or to drive the SIPSI in what we call goal-directed manner much, much later, almost between week 10 and 12. But the ones that have got the suit, they tend to learn to drive the SIPSI in a goal-directed manner between seven and nine months, sometimes even as early as six months, suggesting that the children have, at some point, they start to recognize the help they get from the suit. And then these are the children with CP, that they recognize that help, and then they use those movements. Now, remember when they're using the suit, they don't have to touch the floor to push against the floor. But when they're using the CP alone without the help of the suit, they have to touch the floor and push against the floor. So it does show that somewhere there, and that still has me buffered, that there is a junction somewhere where the cognitive capability of the infant kicks in and they are able to say, wow, I get to the toys because I move this way, even though they are not generating a ground reaction force, but they are moving because of the suit. So that seems to be that the cognition gives some push to them being able to be successful in moving, while the other guys who are using the SIPSI alone really relies on a little bit of the cognition but also on their strength. They have to develop the strength to start to move. So when you say, where are we going long-term, what we have been doing is that we've been following these children to see how many of them eventually crawl independently. Because once they can use the CPC to make right hand, left hand, get to the toy for about, or travel about 12 feet, then we get them off the CPC. Because then for research, we no longer get new information. We don't get new data. 
But in real life, we are hoping that if these children are not crawling yet, that's something that the parents will continue to use in the homes because these children can go to the kiddie bags. I mean, it's amazing if you see them in the homes, the places they go to. Yet when you put them off the SIPSI, they don't crawl to those places. So it's something they can use. But then we're hoping also that the others who have crawled independently, and my suspicion is that these are the babies that are mild to moderate cerebral palsy, is that they are able to crawl before the 14 months of life, which is much shorter than what we normally see with those children. But because these are pilot studies and the numbers are small, we are very cautious about saying, okay, now it does. And so we are waiting to do a larger study with a larger number. But so far the results are favoring the using both the suit and the CIPSI together for children with cerebral palsy. So Pete, from your end, having developed this, What's it like to see it, you know, when you go back to that initial conversation and you're just going with an original concept to where it is now and, and the data that's coming in? What's the level of satisfaction there? Well, it's always exciting to see these devices go from ideation to research use. The next step is actually to drive it, you know, through the research, make it a little more widely available so the research can be expanded. We're always working on the next iteration. Currently, we're integrating all of these different sensor systems into a single unit, trying again to meet better specifications, making it lighter, lower to the ground, easily scalable to different size children, and less expensive so that we can not mass produce it at this point, but at least get numbers up so that it can be exploited in research and perhaps given to the parents for additional training time at home. So where are we in general on that? Five years from now, how widely available could these be, or is it going to take a while? Well, pending the research, you know, that's what drives its efficacy. But I think there's enough out there to suggest it's a useful tool, even if for nothing else than environmental enrichment. If the child on it is exploring a little more, and that's more than they did before, it's all a positive thing. Even for normal children, I've told Tubi, you know, prior and others that my grandsons, prior to them being able to crawl, have driven this around my kitchen. And they learn very quickly through just reinforcement of, you know, if I do this, it does that, and they scoot around and they start to explore. Things are developing fairly fast. We have the methods here in my lab and the engineering resources along with the PTs to combine and continue to refine the device and make it better. So I'm hoping in five years that it is a device that's used in clinics and at home and potentially has a market for kids who don't have developmental delays. It's a tremendous innovation and tremendous research. Tubi Kolobe, Pete Pico, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to share this work with you guys. You can see video of the SIPSI in action and learn more about its inventors by visiting this podcast episode page at moveforwardpt.com. One editorial note, we refer to the SIPSI as the self-initiated prone progression crawler, per Tubi Colobi's instruction. But much of the reporting on the SIPSI has referred to the device as a self-initiated prone progressive crawler. Remember, you can find all episodes of Move Forward Radio at moveforwardpt.com and iTunes. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.